The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, December 6th, 2021, as we record this special episode, as there's good news. No, Major League Baseball hasn't ended their lockout, silly. We've got at least another month of that to go. No, it's long overdue news, but finally, Minnie Minoso is a Hall of Famer, and he's going to be joined by Buck O'Neill, Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, and Bud Fowler, earning, earning the nod thanks to the Early Baseball Era Committee and the Golden Days Era Committee. On this episode, we'll chat about Minoso and talk about the snub of Dick Allen as he fell one vote short of making the Hall of Fame. But we even have more good news. Jim Margulis is back. Welcome back, Jim. Hi. How's it going? Do you have any uh, news? Well, you already announced the news on... On Sox Machine. Yes, I already announced the news. You shared it. Yeah, it's uh, first week of fatherhood. And everything they said about sleep deprivation and uh, feeling like you're putting out fires basically 22 hours of the day is pretty much on point. Uh, it's not like I doubted it before, just because you hear enough people say it that the first you know week or two is about survival more than anything. Uh, so I, I wasn't downplaying it or think I was thinking I was better than it, but I certainly feel it now the way I didn't uh, you know physically comprehend it. It's like uh, if you sleep more than two hours, you you wake up either panicked or guilty. Hmm. It's like uh, if you, you know, if you sleep too well, even only for three hours, thinking like who else was doing the work that I wasn't doing? Yeah. Is the baby alive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a great feeling to have. Yes, but uh, yeah, he's doing well so far. Wife's doing well, so just you know, every, all things relative to how we normally feel with you know six to eight hours of sleep, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty good. So uh, yeah, uh, knock on wood, but uh, yeah, it's it's going well. Excellent. Well, that is excellent news to hear, and what a week to pick. Uh, as uh, baseball was not lacking news uh, this past week, but even more news uh, from Sunday with the Hall of Fame committees making their picks. Uh, Buck O'Neill and Bud Fowler were selected from the Early Baseball Era Committee and selected from the Golden Days Era Committee was Minnie Minoso, along with pitchers Jim Cott, who pitched for the White Sox, Tony Oliva, Minnesota Twins great, along with Cott, both of them spending many years in Minneapolis, and but and uh, also Gil Hodges, in which Hodges had, I mean, his story is absolutely crazy. The most votes ever by the Hall of Fame voters to not be elected in. And he is finally elected in. And that is terrific news as uh, the Hall of Fame committees. These committees are, I think they're writing wrongs uh, based on either the voting limitations or just the voting style of yesteryears but it is still bittersweet news Jim because we talked about this 
several years ago when Minnie Minosa passed away in, in 2015 that th- this day was going to come and he wasn't going to be around to join it, uh, to enjoy it, I should say. Uh, but the day has come. And how are you feeling? Because I know that you're you're a big fan of Minnie Minosa's career, because uh, it is you know it is one of a kind, especially the times that he would come back and make I wouldn't say random appearances, but you know once a year appearances later on uh, in his life. But the time has finally come, and Minnie Minosa is a Hall of Famer. It's it's very you know, like there's a bittersweet element to it, as you said he. He died um, in 2015, so he hasn't been around for a while. It's been very apparent that, you know, the last time he was snubbed in 2014, it seemed pretty clear like he, you know, just because of the odds in his age, just like you can't count on him being around for the next one. Sure enough, he passes in 2015 and you're more or less resigned. White Sox fans, his family, everybody who cares about him uh, is more or less resigned to the fact that, you know, this is that was a missed opportunity for him to partake in the experience and joy. But I still think, you know, if you can set that aside, um, it's still worth celebrating because he he's loved, you know, and and so many people cared for him. So many people still on this earth and, and on this earth for going to be for, you know, decades. Uh, he, he touched so many lives. He'd been around the park. He'd been, you know, so many people have stories about meeting him, uh, signing autographs for hours or seeing great stories uh, coming out tonight from Sluggers, which was his home away from home. Um, just talking about how, you know, he was always around. He had, I've seen uh, photos of his, his Cadillac with the license plates and the, and the flag and the mini Minoso caps on the back. And I loved hearing stories about all the people who nearly almost got clipped by that car. <laughs> just, like, it's just, it's, uh, it, it, it's just great how he's, He's made such an impact. He's been so thoroughly Chicago. Like he embraced the city. The city embraced him. And and so there are a lot of people still around who are so glad this has happened and so glad that, uh, you know, because they couldn't count it ever happening, that they, it's just enjoyable, regardless of the fact that he's not around himself to enjoy it. I, I, I wish that he would have been around. You know, there's still good news in the fact that, you know, so many people are happy. And as is the case with Hall of Famers, uh, and just having that platform of an induction day and all the lead up to it is that his story is going to be told. And, and his story is going to be told to people who didn't know him, really just aren't familiar with the name, may have only known him for his uh, gimmick appearances later in his career. That That's, I think, what's most valuable about this. It's nice that he's in the Hall of Fame, but just it allows it's so much easier for people to tell a story, to come across a story by happenstance. Like it just, when you have the Hall of Fame thing next to your name, when your plaque is there, when you're on lists of White Sox Hall of Famers, or, you know, just when it comes to uh, Cuban lineage, you're not talking about just like White Sox great, Minnie Minoso, or, or, you know, baseball great, or, you know, one of the stars of the 50s. You can just say Hall of Famer, and that sums it up so much more easily and tidily. And that's, I think, what's really nice about this is that you don't really a lot of the explanation that we had to do that we had to hear that we had to pass along as White Sox fans, the people who might not have known his story as well, the heavy lifting is now done by that title. And I'm glad this is happening because looking at the hall of fame ballot, especially this upcoming year, uh, I am worried about Mark Burley and him staying alive on this ballot with the names that are on it. Uh, Cause typically when you have these conversations, it plays into who's going to be the next White Sox Hall of Famer. Uh, but the conversations regarding this year's Hall of Fame class is very contentious, <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm just, you know, when you're looking at all these names like Buck O'Neill and the stories that you hear about Buck O'Neill and getting to learn about Bud Fowler and even though they're Minnesota Twins greats, we know how important Jim Cott and Tony Oliva were to that organization and just the the crazy endurance story of Gil Hodges. And so many times it felt like he was going to be elected in and just fell short. And finally in 2021, he he's making the Hall of Fame. But it, it brought a big smile to my face when I saw the news break from the Baseball Hall of Fame that Minnie Minoso had received enough votes. I felt more confident than ever that he was going to finally make the Hall of Fame. I just wish it happened seven years ago because it would have been just great to see mm-hmm. Minnie's reaction 
Uh, but nonetheless, it has happened. And I have to imagine the White Sox should have some type of Mini Minosa day as far as like a, a promotion day next season. It's not on the calendar right now. But I have to imagine the White Sox are going to do it to to honor one of their greats. Yeah, I guess that's the one thing they can put on the calendar because uh, I guess MLB.com sites are not acknowledging any current players in any current form. So they might lean into uh, Minoso status for a while just for content. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, when you, when you mention the... Um, contentious nature of the hall of fame ballot and, and will mark burley i'll talk a bit about burley later but when it comes to just the nature of it when you see somebody like minosa somebody like buck o'neill um get rewarded uh get their place um it, it's you, you wish they were there especially like that i remember in 2006 i talked to buck o'neill as part of that uh, hall of fame uh that special ballot with negro leagues players and uh, given that Albany was so close to Cooperstown and we covered big Hall of Fame events, I wrote a story about it for the Times Union and I talked to him and just seeing that vote come out and him not being on it and, and being so gutting and he still had the grace uh, to show up to the Hall of Fame and accept the award on behalf of uh, the 17 inducted that year because they were not alive to do it. And, and, and you know, Buck O'Neill was the was the spiritual and physical connection to a lot of these uh, players who weren't around to receive it. So uh, it's when you see something like that, uh, I think it makes it a lot easier to uh, absorb or shrug off the maybe lesser hall of fame cases. Like I saw people complaining that Harold Baines uh, had gotten in before Minoso or that Harold Baines had gotten in before Dick Allen, but you know, it's nice to celebrate a good career, great career, legendary career. Like the harm of it is so little. Um, and this isn't a case like lower the standards, you know, immensely, but when you have like a one of a kind career and Baines has a really difficult career to match. Jim Cott has a really difficult career to match. Uh, Minoso's career numbers alone, hard to match when you, when you count the impact he made as the first black Latin player, as the player who integrated baseball in Chicago. Um, and then you integrate his, or you incorporate his, uh, New York Cuban stats and just show that, okay, this guy didn't break into the majors at 25 because he was a late bloomer. He had three, three, maybe four years taken away from him. That could have been productive in the major leagues to pad those numbers. So, uh, it's just, when you when you're able to celebrate a career that's good to great and and for genuinely good people who made the game better um that's a case where i think it's just it, you just have to feel good about it you have to celebrate it um and, and you know when it comes to the arguments about uh players who might be on the borderline you know as we see when these players pass and they're not around to receive it, it just when when players who are were good and and assets to baseball um, are able to receive those awards, even if like they might not be the strongest Hall of Fame cases. It just, you feel good for them. And then you feel, you know, just great for the people who, who love them. In the case of Minosa, I think we're seeing right now, just the response and the strength of all the people around who, who still love him. And, and that's enough to, you know, make it feel like not a missed opportunity. But yeah, it just, it, it's a case where um, you hope that as voters and committees meet, in future years with players who might've been underappreciated and are regaining or gaining support because of um, just new perspective on how they performed. You hope that um, you, you, you take that into account, just, you know, the, the benefits of, uh, you know, electing a guy who might be on the border versus not electing them and then electing them later when it's too late. It's just, you know, it's an unfortunate case, but for, you know, I just think the white Sox have done a, yeah, it's, it's not a shortcoming on the white Sox. I think the white Sox, have done everything in their power to try to get him elected, like numerous panels, uh, numerous, um, yeah, just uh, events um, showcasing his, uh, you know, Minosa's legacy, a, a really strong presence. I know that, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf was doing everything in his power. <laughs> I think we saw what his power can do when he has direct access to a committee like he did with the Bain situation, but unfortunately he didn't have quite have that going for uh, Minoso. But yeah, just the White Sox have done maybe their best work in highlighting his career. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see it finally come to fruition, even if it is a bit late when it comes to Minoso himself personally enjoying it. I did not know you got a chance to interview Buck O'Neill. 
Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it, it, it was you know, a whirlwind tour for him because he was doing so much media and, you know, it was, uh, you know, very much towards the end of his life. So you could sense some fatigue in his voice. But uh, yeah, every time, you know, somebody wanted him to talk about the Negro Leagues players and the Negro Leagues Museum and, and, and keep their legacy afloat, like he somehow found the energy to, you know, give you just an, a good... Uh, warm, intense five to 10 minutes on, on these players' lives. And yeah, it just, he was really in a remarkable, um, you know, admirable person who's done so much for the game. And when you go to Kansas City, when you go to that museum, you know, you sense his presence, even though he hasn't been around. Like that museum is built on his personality and, and his presence. And Bob Kendrick has done a wonderful job basically soaking up everything that O'Neill had to teach and just his spirit and, and carrying it forward. For Minnie Minoso, while he broke so many barriers with the Chicago White Sox, one thing to remember is that he was a terrific baseball player. And that's where it's mm-hmm. frustrating that it's taken so long for him to get into the Hall of Fame. And I, you know, I looked up just beyond war, I wanted to look up wins above average because today's average player is obviously much better than the average player during Minosa's tenure. But I wanted to know just how much better Minosa was than league average. And looking at total wins above average accumulated on baseballreference.com in White Sox history, Minnie Minoso is fourth all time in franchise history for the White Sox and wins above average. He was 23.6 wins above average during his career as a Chicago White Sox. Uh, Number one was Luke Appling, who played like 20 years. He was 43.8 wins above average. Eddie Collins was second, 39.2 wins above average. And then third was Frank Thomas at 39. Uh, So Venosa's an amazing company. Uh, Fifth, by the way, is Robin Ventura. Uh, and then six, you have Nellie Fox. So some of the greatest White Sox players of all time and Minnie Minoso is right there. So that that's what makes me happy because I, I think what sometimes gets lost is, yes, he did break open the door for black Latino players into Major League Baseball and especially black Cubans. And when you look at Luis Robert today or in the past, Alexei Ramirez, uh, and then, of you know, the White Sox have just had this long history of Cuban players. Minnie Minosa is one of the greatest players of all time in White Sox history. Uh, so as a White Sox fan, that's, that's what makes me happy is that one of the greats to ever wear the uniform is making it to the Hall of Fame. I, I think, well, I, I think, you know, one of the, the reasons why his uh, your pioneer status has been so emphasized is because I think for, for a long time it was kind of obscured by, like, say, Roberto Clemente, who was... Um, you know, seen as a pioneer and, um, you know, there, there's been a push to have his number retired across baseball the way it's retired for Jackie Robinson. And that, that always, you know, confused me a little bit just because, you know, Jackie Robinson was the first and Clemente, you know, for all his merits and, and all his, you know, on the field, off the field um, exploits and, and, and positive contributions to the game and humanity, like, you know, it just seemed like it kind of overshadowed the ones who came before him and, and paved the way like Minoso did. So I think, you know, there's been an effort to emphasize that, you know, Clemente wasn't the first that Minoso helped so many others. And that's why you've seen, you know, you've heard a lot of from the Perez's like Tony Perez and then Eduardo Perez and Orlando Cepeda in previous years have talked about like what Minoso did uh, for Spanish speaking players, you know, because they faced, you know, what do you call you know, basically like double prejudice and both the color of their skin and the language barrier. And I think, you know, Clemente, um, he, he, he was revered in his own right just because he was the player who was comfortable being himself. Like, you know, when we talk about um, his baseball cards and how he was Bob Walker on his first baseball cards, and then he was Bob Clemente and he was never called, he never called himself Bob, hated the name Bob, wanted to go by Roberto. His name was Roberto. And so everybody kept, you know, throwing Bob at him and he just, you know, he would not, um, he would not accept it or he would really not, um, acknowledge it or, or roll with it. He was, um, defiantly himself. And, and, you know, that's, he had to absorb a lot of criticism, like being, you know, the, the stereotypical hot blooded, hot headed player and, you know, difficult to deal with, you know, for the media, but he was just, 
in defense of his own uh, identity and, and how he wanted to be regarded in the world. And I, I think that's why he's had an impact for future players. And, you know, Minoso, he was very ebullient, uh, very joyous player, uh, very happy to be around. And it, I think that player for a while um, kind of got a, uh, a bad rap just in, in the greater culture, like the baseball is you know very, very good to me, that, that kind of uh, stereotypical approach. Um, you know, like a people-pleasing approach, I, I think Clemente allowed uh, a greater, you know, wider array of personalities to be accepted uh, in baseball the way that, you know, greater array of personalities for white players was accepted in baseball. So I think that's why he had that impact. But, you know, and then you then you factor in the fact that, you know, Clemente was great, 3,000 hits, you know, a no-doubter Hall of Famer by performance alone, and then he uh, died in a humanitarian mission. So he's had like an outsized impact, but I think it overshadowed some of the, the the contributions and the hardships that Minoso endured by being a player who, with dark skin, who spoke Spanish and integrated a city in the 50s. And so I think that's why there's been that renewed emphasis on his pioneer status, just to make sure that that work wasn't lost. But as you mentioned, yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a great player. He was a unique force in the 50s. Um, just, you know, when the Yankees were dominating the decade with homers, like, you know, Comiskey Park did not allow homers. They, it was not conducive to a 40 home run player. You had to play like Minoso uh, played to survive. Like a lot of opposite field power, triples, um, you know, hitting the ball, line drives to right, right center, and running like hell. And and, and that's what he did. And, and then covering that immense outfield ground, he did that very well. So, uh, you know, there are two things to uphold, to to I guess make sure that are upheld when you're discussing Minoso. One is the player, and two is what he endured. And I think it, there's kind of like a back and forth based on what his um, you know his legacy keepers, those advocating for him, uh, feel like is being overshadowed at a given time because at various points over the decades, like both have been uh, easy or, or susceptible to being ignored. Joining Mini Minoso is Jim Cott, and for White Sox fans that grew up in the 70s, you remember Jim Cott as he was traded to the White Sox in 1973, and he had a pretty big big impact for the White Sox, especially in 1974, in 1975, as in 1974, Cott had a seven-point war season uh, as he started 39 games, and he appeared in 42 and in 1975, Cott had a 7.7 war season uh, as he started 41 games, appeared at 43. He pitched over 300 innings at the age of 36, and he finished fourth in the Scion voting in 1975. And what's interesting is that Jim Cott is known as being a Minnesota Twins legend and helping out with their broadcast for years. He's, he's known to be a Minnesota Twin But his two best seasons of his career at age 35 and 36 were with the Chicago White Sox. I find that to be a bit a bit funny, a bit interesting, Uh, but it's obviously a a huge day for Minnesota Twins fans because, you know, not only Jim Cott, but Tony Oliva as well, uh, make it into the Hall of Fame and. Yeah, it's always fun when you have these committees select these players and just take a deep dive into baseball reference. Because I knew Jim Cott had pitched for the White Sox, Jim. Like, I could see the image of him wearing the red pinstripe White Sox uniforms in the mid-70s. But I had no idea that his two best seasons, were, which were very good seasons... uh, In 74 and 75, were the two best seasons of his now Hall of Fame career. Yeah, Cott, uh, you know, he was part of that Chuck Tanner staff or, or you know, series of staffs in the early 70s. And Chuck Tanner, basically, if a, a guy could give him innings, he would take every inning he would uh, be able to deliver. Like Wilbur Wood, that's when Wilbur Wood was topping 300 innings a season. And, uh, you know, Tom Bradley was a guy who, uh, you know, stepped up to deliver like inning totals in the high 200s. And Stan Bonson was another one. Like Chuck Tanner basically rode starters as long as he possibly could and in some cases rode them into the ground. But yeah, Cott was, you know, somewhat of a, a I guess reclamation project in the White Sox got him because they got him off waivers from the twins and, and given the budgets of those White Sox teams at the time, they could basically use talent wherever they found him. And yeah, Cott stepped up. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, just delivered two excellent seasons before moving on. And the thing with Cott, I think is that when you look at his totals and you look at his, um, you know, his career and just 
back when he was being you know evaluated uh, as a Hall of Fame candidate in real time, like on the ballot, and, and he's against uh, you know pitchers who are clearing 300 wins like every few years if you get a guy topping 300 wins and, and so like you know when he looked at uh, his his career totals I'm looking at him now 283 wins great against 237 losses that's a lot 3.45 ERA not great especially in the 60s and 70s early 70s which were oftentimes uh, pitcher eras like the the innings uh, totals and the workhorses were taken for granted a little bit. And uh, I think as baseball moves into this new era, where just a max effort and pitchers struggling to get through five and six innings with regularity. These, these outliers of, um, you know, guys who could win 200 games and lose 200 and throw more than 4,000 innings. Like there's going to be a renewed appreciation for what that took. And I, I imagine Tommy John will be somebody who gets a similar amount of consideration over time, just because he's another one who has a, you know, a, a career workload that won't be able to be touched. Yeah. 230 Tommy John had 288 wins, 231 losses, you know, pretty much a case nearly identical to Cots. So I wouldn't be surprised if he showed up on a committee and, and got similar consideration. And then to uh, go back to Mark Burley, what I teased earlier is that I think, you know, Mark Burley, if, if, should he fall off the ballot or should he kind of languish in the, you know, low tens of support? He's somebody I can see getting a similar resurgence over the course of committees, just because there aren't going to be people like him around anymore. Like unless baseball somehow really, you know, create some rule changes that really uh, reduces the amount of pitches per inning while still maintaining action. Like it's going to be hard to have Mark Burley's in the future. Uh, so, you know, as the years go on and as like pitchers struggle to get to even 200 wins and 200 innings is more of a rare accomplishment, uh, I think it could see a renewed uh, appreciation for what Burley brought to the game. So I think, you know, Paul Canerco, his candidacy, I think there are a lot of players like him at first base, like a very good career. Burley, I think, is unique enough um, to where when yeah, as, as the game progresses a decade or two and starting pitchers are held to a completely different standard, I think you know voters and, and committee members, panel members might look a generation back and say, maybe we underappreciated these guys who could you know take the ball every five days, uh, throw six innings, throw 200 a year, win 10 plus games a year with above average ERAs, uh, because that just might not be done that often going forward. Well, speaking of Mark Burley, the National League Cy Young conversation after the award was given to Corbin Burns and the whole back and forth from everybody on social media and in columns about how innings matter. And the especially for those that voted for Zach Wheeler and thought Zach Wheeler should have won because he threw more innings than Corbin Burns. He he appeared in more games than Burns. So and if you post similar numbers, the award should go to Zach Wheeler, that that was their case. And uh, that's in the back of my mind when many of these writers are voting for the Hall of Fame, Jim. Because mm-hmm. if innings matter to you, then Mark Burley should be getting more check marks. Because as you mentioned, I mean, when are we going to see a streak of 200 plus innings again, like Mark Burley? I mean, does anyone currently have that in Major League Baseball? Would it be Max Scherzer? Oh, I mean, counting COVID or, or around COVID? Yeah, you discount COVID. Like, skip. Yeah, no, no. I was thinking, like, Scherzer, I know he didn't get there this year, but, like, before then, no, he had uh, 2019, he, he didn't get to 200 innings either, so. Yeah, so you're not, You're. it's going to have to start, like, now. Like, someone in 2022 is going to have to pitch 10-plus consecutive years of 200 innings. And we're going to be amazed by that. Look at the endurance of this starting pitcher. And you could have Mark Burley fall off the Hall of Fame ballot because of all of these sluggers and a lot of these baseball greats that are entering their 10th and final year of Hall of Fame voting because of all the controversy that surrounds them. And again, makes this Hall of Fame voting very contentious. Uh, This upcoming ballots voting for the Major League Baseball, I should say the Baseball Hall of Fame, not the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, I'm sorry, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you look at someone like Jim Cott finally making it and the case that you just made for Mark Burley, even if Mark Burley doesn't get voted in by the baseball writers, I wonder if you're right, Jim. Maybe in 20 years when he really doesn't care 
uh, Mark Burley will get voted into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, just like a, he's somebody you, you know. You know, Minnie Minosa wanted it. I don't think Mark Does. Burley, <laughs> at least not yet. You know, maybe as you know, with some distance from the game and and such. Like I think that's pretty appealing for anybody to be validated by Hall of Fame. But yeah, just you know, Minosa wore his you know emotions on his sleeve. Most of his emotions were very. Uh, you know, positive ones, uh, life affirming, um, you know, com- compassionate, uh, and just, um, everybody was his friend, you know, Burley, I think just more a bit closed off. I, I think there's gotta be at some level, you know, for a baseball player, like wanting to be recognized on that level. So here's hoping, but, uh, just, it might be a case where he's just kind of caught between generations a little bit or caught between, um, you know, on the tail end of a type of player going out, and you just might not notice the absence for a while. For those that are listening uh, and a great uh, love for the history of baseball, you may be screaming at us, well, what about Billy Pierce? And what about Dick Allen? Jim and I are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about those that did not make the cut for from the Golden Ages era committee Hall of Fame voting, and uh, we'll also get Jim's thoughts on what has happened for the White Sox offseason and his lockout thoughts as well after this quick break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast as we continue the discussion of the Hall of Fame voting and we move over to those that did not make the Hall of Fame. And the biggest snub that's drawn a lot of attention after the voting is Dick Allen, Jim. And Dick Allen, you need 12 of 16 votes to be elected in and he was only voted 11 times out of the 16 people voting. So he unfortunately falls one vote short of making the Hall of Fame. And hopefully the next time he his name is on the ballot for this committee, uh, they correct that wrong. And Dick Allen had an amazing career. He won the Rookie of the Year in 1964. He won the MVP with the White Sox in 1972. He had a career 58.7 war. And his 162-game career average was a 292 batting average. He had a 378 on on-base percentage, and he slugged 534. And he averaged 33 homers and 104 RBIs per season. And since the integration era, 1947 to the present, Dick Allen has the highest war season by a Chicago White Sox position player as he won his MVP in 1972, and he was worth 8.6 wins above replacement. And uh, I'll drop the trivia question in a moment. But Jim, this is a bit on the disappointing side. And again, another situation where unfortunately Dick Allen, even if he was voted in, uh, he's not around to enjoy the honor. I'm just a bit confused here from the committee. And maybe it's just because it's a different era. If you have a Dick Allen playing today 
presently in Major League Baseball, I think he'd be way more loved than perhaps when he played in the 60s and 70s. He's somebody, I think, who social media would have been split on, but I think he would have been somebody who would have benefited from having a direct line to fans and direct line to um, just the people who wanted to like him or were people who appreciate the way he played the game and weren't so concerned about, you know, what kind of teammate he might've been or what kind of clubhouse person he might've been. Um, and, and even then the reports there are mixed, like with Philadelphia, he got the reputation for being a malcontent, but when you look back now and you, in, you just kind of understand the, you know, as we talked about with the Minoso um, discussion, discussion and just how players were not allowed to be themselves or players who tried to be themselves. Um, and, and uh, if the media was not forgiving or just didn't think they had earned the right to be themselves, um, they were more or less cast aside or framed as difficult. And, you know, we talked about, um, you know, Minnie Minoso and how, you know, like say with Minnie Minoso, he's a case where, you know, Minnie was not his first name. It was a nickname given to him and he just took it. He was, he didn't mind, you know, even though his name was, uh, you know, Saturnino Arrestus, like the, he went by Minnie just fine. He was fine to have it on hats and sign autographs with it, et cetera. So, you know, that was a case where, you know, he just rolled with it. Uh, Dick Allen was a case where they called him Richie in his career and he didn't want to be called Richie. He, he thought that was a little kid name and, he wanted to be called Dick and he just thought that was a man's name and um, what he had, you know, just what he preferred and that's his rights. But a lot of people in the media, especially ones who want to needle him or just uh, demean him in some ways, um, get the public on their sides or get the public against him, uh, would just call him Richie and, or, you know, Richie parentheses, call me you know, close parentheses, Dick, you know, just, you just a weird, um, kind of passive aggressive attack on his, you know, personhood, you know, just <laughs> in weird ways. So I think had he arrived a couple of decades later, it would have been a completely different story. And I think, you know, as you know, our, attitudes evolve on just, you know, players trying to be themselves. Like we're, we're dealing with it now in real time in terms of bat flipping and, um, just the on field, uh, emotions and, and demonstrations and such, just, you know, how that's, uh, you know, sometimes celebratory, sometimes that's beanball worthy and how we're all arguing or debating whether there should be a line, if there's a line being crossed and, you know, that's an, even though that's a little bit tiresome and, and feel like we should be past that, it's still an evolution over what players decades earlier dealt with and matters as simple as just what they wanted to be called and, and players not being allowed to call what they wanted to be called. So that's a case where, you know, just as we move away from him uh, or move away from his playing days and just have a better idea of what players like him had to deal with off the field, you give them a little bit more leeway for any kind of um, you know transgressions or, any kind of, I guess, jadedness to their, uh, you know, their legacy or just the way they carry themselves because they had to deal with a lot of BS that, uh, you know, other players wouldn't have to deal with. So I, I think he's, I think the one thing I think that's positive about this development is he, he did come one vote short and he, you know, he's been one vote short before, but four, four other players got inducted. And when you only have a four person ballot, that you know four players is nearly impossible so five players is nearly mathematically uh just <laughs> unable to happen just it's, you'd have to have like a perfect break on all ballots to get five in i believe and it, it's a case where just um once you know now that you have minoso and, and cotton oliva uh off the ballot hodges off the ballot there should be that last vote for him to get over the hump. And I think uh, that's a case where, you know, it's unfortunate he wasn't around for it. And it seemed like he was benefiting from people revisiting his legacy and open to talk about just what he went through. And especially with you know, people who supported him during his playing days. And I know he was very appreciative of how the South side received him. And he said that, you know, he had some of his best days were in Chicago, just um, enjoying the game it would have been fun to see him, you know, get that victory lap for his career that he was kind of denied in real time. But um, there'll be people who want to talk about him and I'm looking forward to it because I think of every player, you know, in White Sox history, um, 
he might be the one player who, if I could say like, go back in, in time and say like, I want to see one player at his peak for a week. I think it'd be Dick Allen just because of the way they describe him that like just the otherworldly power, the, the speed that wasn't appreciated. Um, just the, the, the knowledge of the strike zone, the intensity, like, you know, and you look at his numbers too, just some record setting numbers uh, that he posted with the white Sox, um, that really only Frank Thomas has rivaled. Like, in the 70s, in Old Comiskey Park, leading the league in homers twice in Old Comiskey Park, I'd want to see what that looked like, how that materialized, because the stories people tell about him and his power and his speed and, and just how he, how he could become such a force when he was on top of his game. Uh, I want to see what that looks like. Yeah, I think if, if you have a player like Dick Allen today, with the way that we look at numbers and the way that we break down games, that player would be more loved than they were in the sixties and seventies, whether you liked their attitude or not, the style play and the numbers they would produce. There no doubt, like in 1972, when he won his MVP, 37 homers, 113 RBIs. He had 19 stolen bases. He hit 308. He had a four, 20 on base percentage and he slugged 603 and his OPS plus was 199 Jim. He was 99% better than the league average hitter in 1972. I mean, Mike Trout has when he's healthy, has a tough time putting up those type of numbers. And we're already putting Mike Trout up there, you know, comparing him to Mickey Mantle. And Dick Allen had those level of seasons in a White Sox uniform. And that was my trivia question to you. In the Chicago White Sox history since 1947, since integration, there's only been five White Sox players to have a season OPS over 1,000. Dick Allen was one. Can you name the other four? Since 47, so Frank Thomas. Yes. Albert Bell. Yes. Name the other four. So let's see. You got two, so you got named two more. Jim Tomey. Yep. And I, was it Jermaine Dye? That's correct. You got it. Yeah, because so, I remember that 2016, like both, like yeah, Tomey and Dye, like I linked them together. So once I once I remembered Tomey had a huge year, um, Dye followed. Yes. Yep. Good job. Good job. I would have said Kernerko, but Kernerko, uh, his best season was 977. Uh, Jose Abreu uh, got up to 987 during his MVP 2020 season. It's a lot of Frank Thomas uh, yeah, in the know. OPS greatest seasons, but there's, you know, Dick Allen, eighth all time uh, single season OPS and in, uh, integration. Uh, and he's there again, 12th as well. Uh, so just a, a fantastic career. And I do hope that one day, Dick Allen does get the nod and gets into the Hall of Fame. Mainly because of the way that we look at today's game. And I think you see it from like ESPN's Jeff Passan. This is a head scratcher. Like the way that we cover today's game. It should be no doubt that a hitter, a great hitter like Dick Allen makes it to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, going back to his numbers, like you mentioned, the 199 OPS plus, um, that's only been topped once in White Sox history by Frank Thomas in his, you know, insane 1994 season where he went uh, posted a 212 OPS plus. Like, no matter how many great years Frank posted, like only one of them beats Dick Allen's 1972. That's how good he was. Yes. So, and uh, I'm looking right now at the video where he hit two inside the park homers in one game in 1972. Like that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm glad that's caught on video. Um, but that makes me want to see more of him. That's that's a great player. I, I would pick Minnie Minoso just to to see him in his prime. Because again, when you look at his numbers, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I, I want to see that in action. Like, yeah, I, I would love to go back to like mid 50s baseball and see how the game was played, knowing if I could still keep the memory of how watching how today's game is played and the the the, the big differences between the two, even though it's the same sport. But Dick Allen's a great pick as well. That that's also a great pick. Uh Billy Pierce. Billy, I, I didn't see a vote total for Billy Pierce, but I know that he was one of the names on the ballot. 
And uh, Billy Pierce had a great 13-year career with the White Sox. Is he kind of in this same group, Jim, as uh, as Mark Burley when we're talking about Burley's chances of making the Hall of Fame? Or do you think his career is comparable to now the Hall of Famer Jim Cott? He's a, a little bit tougher to assess just because his career, like he threw 3,000 innings, 3,300 innings. So, I mean, that's great by today's standards, but it wasn't otherworldly by the standards of his day. You know, had a, had a couple 20 win seasons also not stand out. The ERAs were good, you know, but not great at 3.27. Like he, he wasn't a huge peak candidate and he wasn't a huge career candidate. He was kind of in between of having good of both. Um, he had, he had a nice three year peak in the fifties with the white Sox, where he led the uh, league in complete games three years in a row. So he had like a little bit of a run, um, but it just quite wasn't enough, um, you know, during his time on the ballot to, uh, really just sustain that much support. And then when you see like a guy like Jim Cott come in, like, you know, cut through 4,500 innings, you know, Pierce only through 3,300. So I think that's a case where, you know, you just admire the, uh, the workhorse that Cott was, I, I, I think the tough thing with Pierce's case is that he was used in a unique way. Like Al Lopez saved him for head to head matchups against the Yankees and against uh, Cleveland. Like those were the two chief competitors for um, the White Sox during that run. And he wanted his best against uh, their best. And so it'd often be Billy Pierce against Whitey Ford, like trying to take him down. And, and so he had some weird usage patterns, had a little bit of relief work that was unusual for a starter in his day. So the way he was managed makes it a bit difficult to, um, you assess his career from a pure workload standpoint, but he's been caught in between a little bit. And, you know, if he had more than 211 wins or if he had 211 wins at the lower ERA like it seemed like he would need to either have more uh like say like 700 more innings at the level he pitched or he'd need to have like more of a peak for the innings he threw but he's just kind of caught in between uh of a player who just was great for a while but not wasn't elite the way that like say you know and this is unfair to anybody but like Sandy Koufax like Sandy Koufax had a really short career by anybody, any Hall of Famer standards, but the career that he had, uh, just that peak was all he needed. Like Pierce didn't have that run to where he distinguished himself from the pitchers of his era. So I think that's why it's a bit tougher for him. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned with four Hall of, you know, with four Hall of Famers coming out of this ballot and, and Dick Allen being such a near miss, when you only have four votes per ballot, that leaves no votes for anybody else. Yeah, <laughs> Like people might have wanted to vote for Pierce or Ken Boyer, I think was probably the strongest case of anybody who didn't uh, uh, basically got that three votes or fewer um, in the also rans listed by the Hall of Fame. But there was just no votes for anybody else. Like even if somebody wanted to vote for a Pierce and Boyer, like they couldn't if they also like the candidacies of Minoso and Oliva and Cotton Hodges and Allen. So I think that's a case where we might need another ballot a few years from now, um, and, and I, I think the these committees, the air committees aren't established enough to know exactly when the next one's coming, but say like several years from now, uh, if Pierce resurfaces on the ballot, like it'll take another ballot to understand like how much support he actually has because the support received by the players uh, on this ballot and the agreement in that room that allowed four players to uh, get to the Hall of Fame in such a tight uh, voting field, uh, I think makes it really hard to know just how close or how, uh, you know, maybe how considered these also rands were. Do you think as far as the hall of fame voting, when it comes to these committees that it, the voting structure should change to yes, no voting instead of here's a pool of 10 players and you get four votes, put in the four names that you're going to vote for. I, I think it would be, fair for everybody and it just it, it's uh you know it's one of the oddities of the hall of fame especially like when there was a severe backlog on the hall of fame ballot and, and guys like you with, with really worthy cases like jim edmonds um you know kenny lofton uh these these exceptional players were one and done like they didn't get five percent their first ballot they dropped off uh just because there was no oxygen uh for those 11th through 15th players on the ballot because the first 10 were so good 
Um, that's a case where, yeah, you wish there was a yes, no, because some players do fall through the cracks. Um, you know, I, I understand it a bit from the, um, I, I think the one benefit of it is that if you had a yes, no ballot, unless you do it like every year or every, you know, three years or something like that, um, it's a case where, uh, it makes it a little bit weirder that a guy can become a hall of famer later. And in the case like Minoso's where, you know, it took, uh, and uh, years of stumping for the White Sox, years of education, the redesignation of the Negro Leagues as a major league and giving Minoso those three years and the New York Cubans, uh, those stats onto his major league stats, to get him over 2000 hits. Like it took a process for Minoso to get there. And I think by having his candidacy come up every several years, while it's unfair to the player and, and especially like a case like Minoso where he uh, died during these windows of consideration, I, I think it does allow a committee to be less jaded. If, you know, like say Minoso is on a ballot every year um, and, and said like a pool of 30 players, like yes, no, yes, no. And for 29 years, he's considered a no. Would voters in that committee say like, well, nobody's ever liked him. You know, he's ever liked him enough to be a Hall of Famer for 29 years. Are we going to give, uh, why should this 30th year be any different? So I think, you know, the one benefit of these committees and uh, the limited votes that they do have is that it, it does allow players' cases to be a bit fresher in committees' minds when they're reevaluated a few years from now. But you do wish that it would keep, you know, perhaps the mortality of these players in mind just because it is you know, bittersweets when a player had the possibility of enjoying it, but just uh, the votes uh, or the math of the votes did not break in their favor. All right. So that concludes our Hall of Fame talk. And again, great news as a White Sox fan perspective, as Minnie Minoso has been voted into the Hall of Fame and look forward to his introduction at Cooperstown. And uh, I've never been to Cooperstown yet. I still haven't made it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Maybe that changes this upcoming summer. Do they do something special for the Hall of Fame introductions where they, do they have set displays even for like the Golden Age Committee players at the Hall of Fame gym? Yes. Okay. That would be cool to see. Yeah, that's a case where I wish I lived 80 minutes from Cooper's. Again? (laughs) Yeah, I would would be there uh, early and often uh, this, you know, over the the next calendar year just to uh, soak it all up. Well, before we sign off on this episode of the podcast, I guess I should give you a moment. I know there's been a lot going on in your personal life, Dad, uh, but the White Sox offseason, the days leading up to the lockout, uh, what were your thoughts as far as when you were seeing all of the breaking news that were that was happening? And that was just a week ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long week. Um <laughs> Oh, also, a uh, shout out to my son for waiting four minutes uh, past midnight to be born on Minnie Minoso's birthday. That's, I think, Excellent. Yeah, that was, uh, as I was kind of like doing the math in my head about you know, how much time it would take once going in the OR for him to come out. Like I was thinking like, oh, we could get November 29th. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the comfort of my wife was a top priority, but in the back of my head, I'm thinking, eh, be the worst i hope you know they do a really thorough job between uh (laughs) procedures cleaning all the instruments to make sure that this is going to be very sterile (laughs) she doesn't know this does she no she does she does um because we were were talking about because we also liked uh that november 29th was the one first day that doesn't fall into thanksgiving oh nice or, or can't fall into thanksgiving so it's like yes there's that so we all we both like november 29th more than 28th but I also like Minnie Minoso being part of it. So I was very proud of him. First time I was proud of him ever was uh, waiting until 12.04. But yeah, when I was following the news, uh, when it comes to the lockout, like, you know, I, I think everybody was expecting it just so it's hard to be surprised. And I think when it comes to a work stoppage or a lockout and baseball not having one for a while, I, I think it's easy to kind of mix up um, – the lack of a work stoppage with labor peace. And I think we heard enough acrimony over the last several years with service time and with, um, you know, the draft system with tanking and with the you know, free agency being frozen that players were not happy uh, with the way the CBA was being used against them. And we heard fans who, uh, you know, when defending service time manipulations would say, well, they should have negotiated better. So <laughs> it's a case where, you know, now they're, um, you know, this is their time to negotiate. And so 
I think it's easy to conflate like a lack of a work stoppage or um, you know lack of a lockout or lack of a strike with labor peace. Like I don't think there's been labor peace for quite some time, and and this is their first time that the players can really stump for what they feel they've been wronged by. So I was anticipating a lockout. I think it's probably healthy for a union to have a, a work stoppage every once in a while, just to make sure that um, you know they're not being complacent. Um, so that's a case where, yeah, it's here. And I just think the weird thing, as I mentioned before, uh, is that you know the MLB.com has erased all traces of current player names from their team pages and their home page and just when you go to those pages it's so <laughs> lame yeah there's nothing there and it just it highlights like oh yeah we go there for the players we watch it for the players we care about what the players who they are and what they do and so i don't quite get that tack yet because there's nothing saying they don't have to or you know that they have to like retract stories you know news stories written about them so it's very it's very peculiar to me because i think that i just look at that and think like well Oh yeah, um, nobody's rooting for the owners. Like nobody's rooting for Rob Manfred to get the best deal. How do you feel about the White Sox off season so far? Just Kendall Graveman, Louis Garcia is returning, and they can't find a trade partner for Craig Kimbrell. Yeah, I, you know Graveman's fine. Um, you know he helps. He fills that. Um, you know, depending on whether Ryan Tapera comes back or not. Like you know, he fills that hole that Ryan Tapera was. Great at addressing um, last year, and he should continue that, whether regardless of maybe Tapera comes back and uh, Tony LaRusso has two of those guys, so that's fine. But, you know, Larry, I think I appreciate the player, but, you know, I, I think the thing with Garcia that makes me a bit wary of him or wary of him <laughs> is that he it's his ability to cover so many positions, I think has allowed the white Sox to get a little bit complacent in what they consider depth for those positions. And it's like, great. He can start in right field in a day or he can start second base or shortstop. You know, that's, that's all well and good, but then postseason comes around and he's the best corner outfield option two years in a row. And that's what worries me about the way the white Sox construct a roster when Garcia is on it, he can cover so many positions convincingly for short stretches that all of a sudden, you know, sometimes, the White Sox are short in multiple positions and they hope that he can carry them. And he, more often than not, he comes up a little short and that's not his fault. And he's a skilled player and he deserves a payday, but having him on the roster, I think sometimes makes the White Sox feel like they have security at too many positions where they don't. So that's something I'm monitoring. I think going forward is just how many corner outfielders the White Sox have before Garcia starts a postseason game. Uh, because I don't like seeing that happen two years in a row in left or right field. Um, then when it comes to the other parts, like, you know, the, the Marcus Semyon deal and, and just the, the ones where the White Sox might've been fits, but they're well on the outside looking in. Like, I just really hope that the lack of a trade materializing for Craig Kimbrell so far, isn't why the White Sox can't do bigger things. I think that's the thing I'm, it's, I'm not convinced it's happening yet. And, and I'm not, um, saying that the White Sox have made a mistake. Maybe they'll find a ticker for Kimbrel will be fine. But just, I'm rolling that around the back of my mind. Like, I'm hoping that's not the reason why the White Sox aren't being aggressive at spending early is because they want to be sure Kimbrel's uh, salary is off the books. But I think, I think the one argument I'll make against myself is that if I think there was a chance that Kimbrel was coming back or wouldn't find a taker, um, then I don't think Graveman would be here at that salary. So that's kind of how I'm negotiating that situation right now. So you think because of the way that Graveman was signed to a three-year, $24 million deal, you think that means that Kimbrell is still going to get traded? Yeah, just a lot of money for relievers when you have a few holes to, to fill elsewhere. So I just think, you know, it kind of goes back to Jerry Reinsdorf, like not wanting to sign that, not wanting to pay that big contract. I don't think Jerry Reinsdorf is all that involved. Hmm. I think this is the first off season we're seeing the Kenny and Rick show mm -hmm. with, with Kenny Williams acting as the White Sox proxy at all these owner meetings and, and Jerry not involved in these CBA negotiations. I don't think he's all that involved. Well, I mean, I don't think he might be involved personally, but I think his precedent setting and knowing like what, the White Sox will ultimately approve. Like, I don't think Kenny approves nine-figure deals. 
Okay, that's fair. Yes, that would require. So, I, so that's why I'm saying, like, whether it's Jerry Weinsdorf coming in and saying, "No, uh, we're not playing. We're not going for Semyon at that price." Like, whether he personally has to say that, I think the precedent is strong enough by now that um, the White Sox, you know, Zach Wheeler, I think was the right fit, but I think Semyon being in his 30s and being uh, you know, like Zach Wheeler, I think was in his physical prime and, and you could argue he could be over the, his physical prime for the entirety of his, uh, five-year deal. I think with Semyon, like harder case to make. And so he's not the perfect player for, uh, a low nine figure deal. So the White Sox aren't going to, aren't going to be players. I think that's a case where Reinsdorf or the precedent that his spending allowance is set, uh, make the White Sox not really players in this kind of market, which I think is a bummer, which I think is uh, you know, a, a disservice to the whole money will be spent thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's discouraging that the White Sox might rebuild and might have done all that intentional losing uh, and, and ultimately had no intention on shelling out on a big deal that might have solved a position for five years. And even if like, you know, like say a Bryce Harper case where, he only solves a position for seven of 12, 13 years. If the White Sox can be an elite team for most of those seven years, like you just don't know what the White Sox are capable of spending right. and developing and doing. So that's where a case where just like the, the White Sox lack of imagination uh, just kind of hovers over everything and makes it really difficult to just see the White Sox ever breaking through that salary unless they do win the World Series uh, or just have the kind of, you know, back-to-back AL pennants and, you know, drawing $3 million a year and leading uh, the league or close to it in TV ratings. Like, I think it's going to take some kind of um, paradigm-shattering success like that in order to shift imaginations. I think, you know, when it comes to the White Sox, I think, Jerry Reinsdorf's spending habits or the, 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 the spending that ownership has allowed has diminished imaginations, uh, both for fans and maybe even Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams too. That I could believe, yes. I, that I will agree with you. I, I would say that for those that are, that would, you know, will White Sox only sign Kendall Graven to the biggest deal so far because of Jerry Reinsdorf? I, I would refute that and say the White Sox general manager loves to spend money on relievers. <laughs> during his tenure. But the point that you make is that mm-hmm. this is his 10th season. Yeah. And I think it's almost his 20th season with the Chicago White Sox or Rick Hahn, uh, that working so long under Jerry Reinsdorf and understanding what he's going to say yes or no to maybe has limit his imagination on how to build a baseball roster. And that's why you get Kendall Graveman and Lurie Garcia when other teams are, are spending huge amounts of money. And, and that's the thing like with Rick Hahn after his press conference the day or hours before the lockout began that once the lockout ends, the White Sox will be prepared to move quickly. Everyone is getting what they're asking for, Jim. Everyone. Mm-hmm. The years, the cash, Someone is willing to meet that. And the White Sox are not known to do that very often. Unless you're Yasmani Grandal or a reliever. I kid. Uh. Well, it's just, yeah, <laughs> positions where the, the top of the market is kept. Like a, a 30, you know, a catcher in his 30s or a 30-year-old catcher is not going to make a money that like a 30-year-old second baseman is going to make. Uh, a top closer is not going to make what a top starter makes. So I think that's a case where, you know, you, you enjoy top of market signings, but not top at market prices. Um, the, the, well, you, you mentioned like, you know, they'll be ready to act after the deadline, like, well, or after the lockout ends, like, so will every other team. So there's that. Um, <laughs> the one thing I think is curious is, is that he said like the trade market, you know, hasn't materialized, but it will. That's one thing I think I'm paying attention to is like White Sox can, do some, you know, if they're willing to get transactional, they can make some trades. They have similar players, like we talked, we've talked about with like, you know, Elo Jimenez and Andrew Vaughn and uh, you know, Jose Abreu. Like they've, they have some gluts at some positions and holes at other places where, you know, teams less sentimental or more daring can make some moves. So I'm curious whether that trade market is only limited to Craig Kimbrell or whether there will be, future moves to be made that kind of deal 
major leaguer for major leaguer challenge trades, I think would be a fun thing to see. But I'm not convinced that, yeah, I don't think the White Sox are that team, but it's something I'm keeping an eye on because I think that's, I buy that more than the White Sox suddenly getting interested in players making $100 million. If the White Sox trade Aloy Jimenez, I'm going to be mad at you for four hours and not wanting to speak with you. Why is that? <laughs> because you keep putting this into existence. Like I am, I am fearing after this lockout ends that Aloy Jimenez is going to get traded and it's going to make me upset. And I'm going to say, damn it, Jim. <laughs> I'm going to be slightly upset too, because you know, it's chance they're selling low, but just like, uh, yeah. there are, you know, when you, when you see like the more daring teams, um, for better or for worse, like the Rays are for better. The Mariners have been pretty much men. The Padres, I think, have some successes and failures in that regard, but just there are teams that would probably do it. I don't think the White Sox are the team, but when it comes to like, you know, kind of earth-shaking moves, I think the White Sox have the, the potential to stun more on the trade market than on the free agent market. So that's what I'm curious about whenever action does resume. Yes, you do make a good point, especially during Rick Hahn's tenure. It's been it's been the trades. That's what he's known for that has grabbed the headlines, with the exception of the Asmani Grandal signing. The big moves for Rick Hahn have been in the trade market. So we'll see. But you you do make a great point about Rick Hahn saying we will be prepared to move after the lockout ends. So will every team, because they haven't been doing anything <laughs> the last month or so as the lockout continues for Major League Baseball. I booked an Airbnb in Italy for three months. <laughs> I may not be back, but it'll be okay. I will be ready to work when I get back. Yeah. I'm not checking my email. Well, he can go see his Michigan Wolverines now in the college football playoff, so there's that. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And again, great news on this Monday, December 6th, as Minnie Minoso has been elected into the Hall of Fame. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you've been listening to us for a while or been a fan of the site and our writings, uh, but you don't support us on Patreon, uh, how about now? Go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up to get exclusive content, ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website, and first opportunity to purchase our new Socks Machine swag. So again, if you enjoy our work and want more, go to patreon.com slash machine and sign up today. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I am Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com